This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. I was reflecting earlier on that um, I've had a policy in my Dharma life of always saying yes to things. If people ask me to do things, I say yes. I'm kind of reviewing it now, standing here. Um, but we'll see how it goes. Perhaps I shouldn't have said it anyway. Um, I'm going to start with a verse. We reverence the Buddha and aspire to follow him. The Buddha was born as we are born. What the Buddha overcame we too can overcome. What the Buddha attained, we too can attain. So the first verse of the second stage of the threefold puja. And I'm not sure I can fully convey just what that kind of very simple but direct and deeply profound verse means to me. It connects me to my sense of devotion and reverence to the Buddha, while simultaneously reminding me that the Buddha was born as I was born, an ordinary human being, yet became the Buddha, the awakened one. So not a god, yet no longer an ordinary human being. So what the Buddha overcame, I too can overcome. What he attained, I too can attain, through truly and wholeheartedly committing myself to the path of awakening a commitment that needs to be continually renewed and worked at, but a commitment that for me began on my first retreat. So the title of this talk is Reverencing the Buddha, I Bow to No One, Dead or Alive. Perhaps it will become clear as to why. So I was raised a Catholic And up until about the age of 12, I regularly went to church on a Sunday, catechism classes on a Saturday morning. I made my first Holy Communion at about the age of nine. And after that, I used to go to confession three or four times a month. However, I largely did all that because I was born and raised a Catholic. It's what I did. I didn't really question it. However, as an adolescent, I began to question Catholicism religion in general, and that ultimately led me to my rejection of religion and to the existence of a God. I also, at that time, I think, as part of that, very consciously rejected the belief that there was something or someone above and beyond me worthy of reverence or devotion. So apart from a kind of brief period in my 20s, when I was involved with a kind of feminist spiritual group focused on goddess worship, which seemed to largely consist of ex-Catholics, um, <laughs> which is perhaps not surprising, um, I rejected all forms of religion and spirituality. And furthermore, I think I became very suspicious of it, very cynical about its purpose and function. And that suspicion, that cynicism, was fueled by my passionate interest in sociology and in my late 20s I went to university and following kind of extensive period of study I became an academic sociologist. Now anyone who knows sociology knows that it's a very thoroughly 
rational, materialist, modern discipline. It exists in order to explain modernity. And within that, sociologists love to, well, they love to deconstruct everything, I think, Um, but they love to deconstruct the functions, the purpose of ritual and devotion and reverence and hierarchy, whether it's of a religious, personal, social, political or national nature, and preferably they're all kind of combined together, then that's really exciting. (laughs) So rituals of devotion and reverence are seen to function to either reinforce the power of a kind of elite majority or to reinforce the power of the collective and diminish the individual. And sociology was, for many years, my passion. Um... So coupled with this rejection of Catholicism, I felt comfortable. I felt really at home within sociology. It provided a place for me to critically deconstruct the society I lived in, I live in. A place to channel my anger and kind of rest assured due to family conditions as a child, I was very angry. Um, so I could channel my anger at the perceived injustices and wrongs of society, and of course that included religion. So ideas of devotion, of gratitude, of reverence simply didn't figure in my life in a very positive way at all. And as far as I was concerned, as I said, I bowed to no one, either literally or metaphorically. And I'm kind of reminded of my undergraduate ceremony, graduation ceremony, which I'm a bit embarrassed about now. But the first to receive their certificates were those graduates of dance and the performing arts. And I kind of remember watching with some contempt these dancers kind of almost curtsying and dancing across the stage and doffing their heads to the minor royal who was there to congratulate and hand out our certificates. Meanwhile, I was sitting there with all my kind of fellow graduates saying, I don't think we should even shake his hand, actually. What do you think? (laughs) I thought that might be a step too far. So, yeah, it's a little bit embarrassing when I think now. Um, And it's this attitude that I brought to my first retreat eight years ago, this retreat. So you might be wondering, given what I've told you, why I decided to spend Christmas on a Buddhist meditation retreat. So I can assure you my motivation was not at all spiritual. I had recently finished a relationship and I didn't want to spend Christmas on my own. Um, Chance listening to Rabbi Lionel Blue one morning on Thought for the Day on Radio 4, that would appeal to a certain age group maybe, um, who suggested that people spending Christmas on their own might, amongst other things, go on retreat. And that led to my booking on the LBC Winter Retreat. I was going to learn to meditate. And as I told my sociology colleagues, some of whom were more than slightly alarmed at what I was proposing to do, I had absolutely no intention of attending the more ritualistic or devotional aspects of the retreat. I was not about to become a Buddhist. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, famous last words. And yes, something utterly amazing happened to me on that retreat, something that even now I kind of find quite hard to articulate from a rational perspective. 
I was only there for the first five days. Um, and they truly changed the direction my life was taking. And I know it is a cliche, and we hear it said often, but it really did feel like I was coming home, and coming home to myself in a way that I had not really experienced in my life. Learning to meditate was incredible. I hardly slept for five days, yet I had this kind of energy and enthusiasm and a freshness for life that had been missing for so long. And I met people who were on that retreat, some who I count as very good friends um, these days, some who are on this team um, today. But what of the devotional aspect of the retreat, the evening rituals, the pujas? Um, well, given the cultural context in which I live in, my rejection of Catholicism and all religions, alongside my sociological understanding of the world, it's kind of perhaps not surprising that I was initially confused, puzzled, certainly bemused by it, and even uncomfortable. I really didn't understand what people were doing or why they were doing it. Why would you, why would people consciously choose to bow and kneel and make offerings to a figure on a shrine? Um, yeah, I was not going to bow to anybody. So, some of you might resonate with the discomfort that I was feeling on that first retreat as I watched people bowing, prostrating, making offerings to a statue of the Buddha on the shrine, in short, expressing their reverence and devotion. And maybe my feelings are kind of quite understandable if we view them from kind of rational, materialist mind, which only really acknowledges the existence of things that can be seen and heard and smelt and touched. Well, in trying to kind of make some sense of it, we can turn to the Buddha himself. The Buddha, upon his awakening, recognised a need in himself to revere and respect something beyond himself. But of course, there was no one above him. He was the Buddha, the supreme being, who had gone beyond being an ordinary human being. And so he recognised that the only thing he could worship was the Dharma. So I always kind of think that's quite amazing, really, that there's this kind of the Buddha, the awakened one, and he's looking for something. He knows he needs to look up to something. It also shows us the way in which the Buddha was not claiming the Dharma as his own personal philosophy, his own personal take on life, like a sociologist might. Mm -hmm. um, the Dharma exists as a set of universal laws or truths that exists beyond the individual, even if that individual is a Buddha. So the Dharma exists beyond the individual, yet was discovered through human experience, experienced by Siddhartha Gautama, a human being born into the very rich, high-status Shakya clan of Nepal and northern India some two and a half thousand years ago. And we know that he grew up pampered with amusements and pleasures and luxuries of a worldly material existence with little recourse to the spiritual. In due course, he was married to a young woman called Yashodhara and later had a son, Rahula. And yet, despite all this, he wasn't happy. He felt dissatisfied, bound down by pleasure and property, and family, and power. So feeling discontent with his life, 
The story tells us he makes four visits to the city in his chariot with his charioteer, Chandaka. On the first visit, he sees an old man. On the second, he sees a sick and diseased person. And on the third, a dead body. On each occasion, he asks Chandaka to explain to him what he's seeing. And on each occasion, Chandaka does so, illustrating the fact that one day... Siddhartha, just like everyone else, just like you and I, will be subject to old age, sickness and death. The young Buddha-to-be is deeply troubled and sorrowful about the suffering that is an inevitable part of life. And then he went out on the fourth journey and he saw a holy man walking along the street with a begging bowl. He was calm and quiet and peaceful. And Siddhartha Gautama was deeply impressed by the sight of the holy man. And returning to the palace, he reflected deeply on all that he had learnt. He saw the worldly pleasures on offer to him for what they were, distractions from a deeper understanding about the true nature of reality. Eventually he concluded that like the holy man, oh, sorry, he too needed to go forth from the home to the homeless life. He too would devote himself to the search for truth, the search for reality, to an end to suffering. Thus, he went forth from his luxurious home life and became a homeless seeker of the truth, his only, <coughs> sorry. <coughs> his only possessions being a begging bowl and a simple robe. And he spent six years wandering, meditating and learning what he could from the teachers he met, but surpassing them, strenuously determined to find what had been lacking in his previous luxurious life. For a while, he even de devoted himself to extreme asceticism, going without food or one grain of rice a day, and sleep in the hope that this would help him realise the truth. However, on the point of near death, he realised that denying the body was not a useful spiritual practice and turned his back on it. And in doing so, he remembered a childhood event where he had spontaneously fallen into a deeply pleasurable meditative state. And so he decided he would devote himself wholeheartedly to meditation. Thus he sat down under a tree on the banks of a river and made the resolution that he would not rise from that spot until he gained enlightenment. So we're told that day after day, night after night, he sat there and as he sat, he controlled and concentrated his mind, purified it, suppressed the mental hindrances, the defilements, and finally, full enlightenment, awakening arose. At the age of 35, Siddhartha Gautama had become the Buddha, no longer a human being. His quest for the true understanding of the nature of reality had come to an end. So we can start to see the way in which the Dharma came directly from a human being's experience rather than something being invented. And as we know, the Buddha devoted the rest of his life to teaching the Dharma. He initially returned to his former disciples who had left him when he gave up his austerities. And it was to this group that he gave his first discourse, his first teaching, and gradually a spiritual community grew up around him. He continued to own nothing apart from his robes and begging bowl, 
and each day would, along with the other monks, go silently to the village to beg for food from the householders. Later, after he had eaten, the villagers would kind of gather around him for teachings. And the Buddha taught all who turned up, regardless of who they were, kings, queens, high-caste Brahmins, wealthy landowners, lowly peasants, those from the untouchable caste, prostitutes, and others who stood outside the conventions of society. And in this way, he gained a great following, um, becoming the greatest, the best known of all spiritual teachers in India. And we know that he was deeply revered by his followers and those that came to know him. His very presence, let alone his teaching, could evoke a deep sense of love and reverence in people. So people had a sense of wonder, delight, love, devotion for the Buddha. And even when people were far from him, he was held in their minds in a similar way. And when he died at the age of 80, Many thousands of people, monks and lay people, men and women, mourned his departure. So, back to me sitting in the shrine room on my first retreat. So yes, I felt this discomfort. I felt this disdain for what I was witnessing. And, or yet, alongside or underneath that disdain, that discomfort... There was something else, and I could feel that as well. So as much as I was kind of repelled by what I saw, I was attracted to it, even if I couldn't kind of fully articulate what it was all about at the time. And I kind of wanted to be part of this ritual, yet I really doubted my motives. It was like, was I just kind of getting carried away with the kind of collective energy in the room? Was it sense of wanting to belong to something? Was it a cult? Um, I didn't know. I didn't think it was a cult. They seemed far too nice. Um, but that desire, that longing to kneel before the Buddha, to surrender myself, remained. So on my last day, I walked down the corridor. This was in an old school at the time. I walked down the corridor to the classroom that had been converted into a small shrine room for the purposes of teaching meditation, where I'd learnt to meditate just a few days earlier. Um, and I went in, and I was on my own. And I lit the two candles and sat, sat in front of the Buddha and just looked, just looked. And then at some point feeling incredibly nervous, feeling like I didn't have the right to do what I was about to do, um, feeling scared, excited, recognizing that what I was about to do would change my life, I got up and bowed to the Buddha. I then knelt down and made an offering of incense and took my head to the floor. I kind of left that room knowing I was a different person. I didn't know what that meant, um, but I kind of knew that I needed to explore what it might mean. And I think that since then I've tried to live my life with an open heart, open to the kind of devotion that can reside within me, but can often get overlooked, can often get dismissed, even resisted. For even though I've never doubted my commitment to this kind of thing called Buddhism, to the Dharma, being able to bring my mind and my heart together to express it devotionally has on occasions been a real struggle. 
it's felt like as if I'm waging a battle between this kind of rational, analytical, socially informed mind, intellect, and my heart, my intuition, that tells me there is so much out there that I don't understand. I can't explain using my rational intellect alone. And I think what keeps me going when this battle is kind of getting played out um, is faith, is Shraddha. Um, and that's what began on that first retreat and certainly has kind of been fed along the way by more glimpses or visions of something else. So, for example, another Christmas retreat, this time two years on, after the first one and I'm on the team. Um, I kept saying yes. Um, and I remember very clearly being in the shrine room one evening, similar, with 100 people here, and we had quite a lot of shrines on that occasion. I think there were some six in total dotted around the room. So you can imagine that puja took quite a long time as everyone went to each one in turn. And as I watched people processing and making offerings to the shrines, I just felt my body, my heart and my mind kind of completely and utterly connected to the energy in the room, to the people in the room, and certainly to the shrines and the Buddhas on each of them. And it was as if this kind of rational mind that I had had kind of joined forces with my heart, with my longing, instead of being the voice of opposition, which it so often was. And I can remember looking at the central shrine we had in the middle, and I just felt this heart desire to be a part of it, to actually lie down at its feet, to roll up into it, to even merge with the shrine. I did then notice there were lots of candles and it probably actually wasn't a good idea. But the feeling, the feeling was there. So, so why is it important? Why is it important or is it even necessary to reverence the Buddha? We have the Dharma. Do we need to reverence the Buddha? Well, Bhante Sangharachita, my teacher, the founder of this movement, says that while faith in the Dharma is obviously essential, on its own it may not be sufficient. Alongside faith in the Dharma, we need to have a focus for one's devotion, some higher object for one's inspiration, someone we can look up to and revere. Without this, our spiritual progress which ultimately is one of self-transcendence, will be severely limited, severely impeded. In other words, we need to let go, to surrender, to offer up ourself to something that exists beyond that self, something that we are willing to serve and depend upon. And obviously, for those of us who call ourselves Buddhists, that is the Buddha. And I'm reminded of um, the first night of the, the kind of pre-retreat retreat that the team had here for a couple of days. And Gianna Vacha was leading us in um, a dedication ceremony. And at that point, there weren't any candles or incense on the shrine. Um, and he just invoked very beautifully the idea. He just said, well, we just offer ourselves to the Buddha. And that's what we do every time, whether there's a candle or a stick of incense, is just offering ourselves to the Buddha. 
So we reference a Buddha as a human guide and teacher, as an exemplar of what we as humans can achieve if we are prepared to fully let go of the self, to go beyond our limited, mundane human understanding, just as the Buddha did. So, for me, to talk of reverence to the Buddha contains something of awe or wonder for the sacred, for the mysterious, for the transcendental, something that can't be explained away. So, again, Shraddha, faith, a placing on one's heart in the Buddha Shakyamuni has our ideal of enlightenment, the fulfillment of the awakened mind, something that takes over when rational explanation exhausts itself. So reference to the Buddha connects me to my spiritual commitment and purpose, hence the significance of the verse to me, of the verse that I read out at the beginning. So... I want to kind of say, having hopefully convinced you of why we might choose to show reverence and devotion to the Buddha, or maybe I should say why I think it's important, but I hope I've convinced you as well. Um, I want to kind of explore how we might reverence the Buddha in a slightly different way, but maybe a more immediate way. And this is through, I want to kind of talk a little bit around um, spiritual friendship, And in particular, I want to talk about um, what's known in Sanskrit as Kalyana Mitrata, a relationship of the virtuous, the noble, the admirable, or better still, the beautiful friendship. And I think Jayaka mentioned this um, in his talk last week, which is available online for Buddhist audio. Um, So the Buddha was the first... Kalyana Mitra, the kind of first beautiful spiritual friend to all who he met. He was a Kalyana Mitra par excellence. And this is a tradition that has continued through Buddhist history and practice. It is very much a fundamental part of this movement. And this is an important point because without going into details, Sangharachita eschews the idea of a guru in the traditional sense, but instead echoes and endorses the words of the Buddha himself, who in responding to Anada, his cousin and lifelong companion, who had stated that spiritual friendship was half the spiritual life, the Buddha said, say it is not so, Ananda, say it is not so, it is the whole of the spiritual life. So, while eschewing the idea of a guru, Kalyana Mitrata, the beautiful friendship, in this movement contains or recognises an element of verticality or hierarchy in the nature and practice of this relationship. Again, echoing the relationship of the Buddha as teacher to the disciple as follower of the Buddha. Now, bearing in mind the words of the Buddha, friendship is the whole of the spiritual life. Sankarachita states that having friends who are more spiritually developed than oneself, maybe, particularly at the beginning of our Dharma lives, may be more important to us than actually being in contact with the Buddha. So to quote him, he says, if we happen to have the opportunity to meet a Buddha, we probably wouldn't be able to make much of the encounter or even realise the nature of the person in front of us. 
we're likely to benefit much more from contact with those who are just a little more spiritually developed than we are. And it's through these friends who are a little more spiritually developed than we are that we can receive the encouragement and support and inspiration that comes from being amongst those who have similar values and ideals to ourselves, but perhaps embody them more fully than we're currently able to do. And when I kind of think of that, I just think, how wonderful, how wonderful is that? What a gift. Um, so we need to be open and receptive. And dare I say, even be prepared to revere those who are a little further on in the spiritual path, who have greater insight and understanding and compassion than we currently enjoy or experience. And by doing this, we're stepping into a spiritual hierarchy. Again, Sangharachita, the spiritual life is inseparable from the hierarchical principle. So I have to confess Maybe it will be of no surprise to anyone by now. When I first came across this idea of a hierarchical principle in Buddhism, <laughs> as a tad reactive, <laughs> all my old views about power and inequality and being anti-hierarchical surfaced alongside a good dose of arrogance and thinking that I know best and so on and so on and so on. You kind of get the picture. And again... We can turn to the life of the Buddha to help us understand this hierarchical principle and what we're trying to get at. So the Buddha was an unapologetic critic of the Indian caste system. He dismissed its religious justification and he saw it as a system which contributed to the suffering of many and he named it as such. He refused to abide by it and welcomed into his sangha all those who wish to follow him, regardless of caste. And the Indian caste system, obviously, is just one example of a kind of socially constructed hierarchy. There are many others, historical, contemporary, that are the cause and perpetuation of suffering. So these are false hierarchies. In contrast, the hierarchical principle in Buddhism is a true hierarchy, or the true hierarchy, or the true hierarchy, in which the Buddha kind of presides as both historical figure and transcendental object of reverence and devotion. However, this hierarchy isn't a kind of dichotomy of two. It doesn't just consist of me and the Buddha or you and the Buddha. It includes, as I intimated above, all those around us on the path as well. And again, this is important because it's not simply a case that you are either enlightened or you are not there are kind of almost like intermediate stages or degrees of enlightenment. And some people are going to be much further on, others a little further behind, some at the same place. However, unlike the kind of Indian caste system, which is static, fixed, that constrains and limits people, the hierarchical principle in Buddhism is one of personal change and transformation. It exists to encourage growth and development. And while the ultimate, for the want of a better term, goal, not sure I like that, of this hierarchy is awakening, is Buddhahood, it is not about us all becoming the same. We all have our own unique contribution to make. So it's not a hierarchy of conformity and uniformity, but one where we are encouraged to become a true individual, 
And Kalyana Mitratar underpins this spiritual hierarchy, offering guidance, support, friendship. And it connects us back to the Buddha. So Gampopa, the medieval Tibetan Buddhist practitioner, urges us to think of our spiritual friends as the Buddha himself. Now, we need to be careful about this one, I think, um, how we understand it, because Gampopa isn't suggesting that our spiritual friends are Buddhas, or we should try and convince ourselves that they are, or even that we should treat them as if they are Buddhas, um, heavens above. However, to think of them in, in this way is to acknowledge that they may be more spiritually developed than we currently are, but they contain qualities of the enlightened mind, wisdom and awareness, love and compassion, energy in pursuit of the good of all things, just as we do, but as a result of the fruits of their practice, their qualities are a little less hidden, a little more refined, perhaps shine a little brighter than ours do at the moment. So it's about being open and receptive to the potential within our friends and ultimately the potential within ourselves. So in the remainder of this talk, I want to reflect upon the importance of Kalyana Mitratar for me and in doing so, hopefully show how this helps me to stay in connection with the Buddha, who, as I said, was a kind of Kalyana Mitra par excellence. So... Last week, after Sabadamati's wonderful first night talk that Singamanas was talking about earlier on, um, again, that's available on Free Buddhist Audio, um, I went up to the shrine to make an offering during the puja that followed the talk. And Sabadamati was sitting at the front, exactly where she is now. And as I got up from the shrine, I turned around and I found myself facing Sabadamati. And I just found myself spontaneously bowing to her in acknowledgement of what I thought was a beautiful gift, the wonderful teaching she had kind of so generously given to us. And it felt a completely natural thing to do, one without any trace of embarrassment or sense of feeling inferior or less than Sabajamati. I wasn't trying to curry favour or gain anything from doing it. It was not demanded of me, nor was it expected. Instead, the gesture was a simple acknowledgement that I, I regard Sabajamati as one of my teachers, someone whose qualities of the enlightened mind, her wisdom, her compassion, her energy, definitely, <laughs> is more refined, more accessible, more open than mine is currently. So she, along with many other women and men, is someone to whom I can learn from. And thinking particularly now of um, set a group of women um, who are very close friends of mine, who are in the order and have been in the order for a number of years, who have befriended me and supported my ordination process. And I would feel completely at ease at bowing to them. And here I mean bowing both literally and metaphorically. And in doing so, I'm acknowledging that although I don't have direct access to the Buddha, and maybe in my current state of mind, that wouldn't be so helpful, I do have access to friends who embody the qualities of the awakened mind.
And so it feels natural to hold a sense of reverence and devotion to them, to be willing even to serve them. And I can, as I said, I can do this without any sense of feeling demeaned or lessened by it. I think kind of quite the contrary. I find it liberating, freeing, a lessening of the kind of egoistic self. So the act of bowing to Sabajamati after her talk felt easy. It felt natural. It felt appropriate. Again, though, I recognise that that's not always been the case. And that has partly to do with very strong conditioned views about hierarchies, as I've already explained. It also has something to do with my views on friendships and what friendship is about. But also the fact that when I first came into contact with Tri Ratna and the concept of spiritual friendship, the idea of seeing the Buddha in those who are more spiritually developed than me um, led to me feeling a very strong resistance because I kind of knew that at some level that to open up to that fully meant I had to let go I had to let go of a very strongly guarded, even defended sense of myself, which was largely based yeah, on equal amounts of probably insecurity and arrogance. They generally go together. So a good example of this is, um, for me, is the process of making decisions. So as a woman well into her middle age, unfortunately, I feel that due to social and personal conditioning and background, I've had to really fight to have the right to make my own decisions without the guidance of others. Um, coming from a childhood where I often felt quite powerless and suffered as a result of that, I've kind of treasured my hard-won independence, and therefore I'm not going to give it up lightly. However, in entering into a sangha, in entering into spiritual friendships with those who are more spiritually developed than me, entering into Kalyana Mitrata relationships, I've been increasingly encouraged to seek the opinion of wise friends, of friends who have so much more experience than me, whose understanding of the Dharma, of the spiritual path, is more advanced than mine, but who through love and compassion want to be my friend, want to help me along that path. Therefore, they might just be of some help to me, perhaps, maybe. However, opening myself up to that has not been easy. So I remember a few years ago, I decided I was going to leave my job, my academic career, in order to devote myself to the Dharma and my practice. It felt the right thing to do, and after giving it due consideration, I announced it to my spiritual friends that this is what I was going to do. It didn't occur to me at the time that I might discuss it with others, that I might benefit from their insights on what I was thinking of doing. Why would I? As far as I was concerned, it was my life, my job, my decision. Now, I don't think I made the wrong decision in that case, I think it was the right one. But I realised that on reflection that if I had discussed it with others, it would probably have given me different perspectives on what I was wanting to do. They might have influenced me. They might not have. But in some ways, that is not the issue. Because seeking the opinion of those wiser is not about passively accepting 
whatever is suggested to me, but simply opening up myself more to others, lessening that strongly guarded, defended ego. So friendship can be a practice of transcending oneself, getting ever closer to the Buddha and the awakened state. Another brief example, which happened a couple of years later. I was discussing with a very experienced order member and friend my inability to let go of some very deeply held guilt that I'd kind of been holding on to for a long time. And I was aware that it felt like I was stuck. I was unable or even unwilling to kind of let go of this guilt, feeling like I had absolutely no right to do so. And she listened to me very kindly, very wisely, and suggested that I might do puja on my own regularly as a means of purification, and she talked about how I might approach that and so forth. And I was kind of rather sceptical, I have to say, and given how entrenched I was in my view of being a bad person in relation to this particular issue I was feeling guilty about, I didn't really think it was going to have much effect. Anyway, I then remembered the words of another good friend who had kindly suggested that I might benefit from listening more to others. (laughs) So I decided to follow the advice of my good friend. And over a period of time, I just found myself being able to let go of the weight of this guilt, becoming softer and kinder and more compassionate to myself and to others in the process. And so I kind of had to acknowledge at that point that her suggestion had come from a place of far greater spiritual wisdom than was available to me at the time. And I'm very grateful to her. And I'm grateful to myself that I actually took that on board. A final example. Recently, I felt that I'd kind of reached a bit of a crossroads in what I wanted to do next. And I was feeling very drawn to making quite a radical decision that would involve me leaving my community that I live in, leaving the LBC Sangha, possibly moving to another country. So in some ways, similar to that decision around leaving my academic career. This time round, though, I very deliberately sought out the views and words of three very dear friends, my private preceptor, Shuba, and my two very dear friends, Vishvantu and Banaraji, And I met with them each separately and talked about it. And each brought something different, something different to discussion. None of them told me what I should do. But each skillfully guided me in my reflection on this decision, offering up their own reflections and what they knew of me as we proceeded. And it actually just felt so beautiful. It was kind of Kalyana Mitchita in action. Um, And in the end, it was up to me to make the decision. But discussing it with them openly and freely, I felt that I was able to hear what each had to say before coming to decision that actually I wasn't going to take this drastic step at this time. So in starting to draw this talk to a close, I recognise that those examples that I've just given have been about me in relation to people who have more experience than me, who I see as being further on the path. However, I think it's really important to also acknowledge that spiritual wisdom, love, compassion, seeing the Buddha in our friends, does not always have this obvious vertical nature to it. 
I can think of countless examples of friends who are my peers or friends who on the surface of it may have far less experience than me, but in some respects are clearly further on the path than I am. Um, for example, I see their practice of time and time again moving towards people who I can kind of frankly regard as being a bit difficult and I want to avoid, but they move towards them with love and compassion that I feel is beyond my capacities most of the time. And I'm inspired by them. I learn from them. And, you know, I could spend about 20 minutes rejoicing in the team at this point because it's kind of just like that is what is in action the whole time, and I see it, and I'm, I'm inspired. Um, and likewise, I find that my dear friends in the Order, who have been there much longer than me, who have supported me and offered me so much love and compassion and wisdom, sometimes turn to me for my thoughts and opinions on things. Um, and I can kind of delight in supporting them. I can delight in supporting people who, who are just starting off on their journey. And I think that points to another aspect of this spiritual hierarchy. We are not all travelling along the same route or at the same speed, for the want of a better term. So it's important that we don't just look to the obvious places to see people who are more spiritually developed than ourselves. Yes, they're going to be there, but they'll also be in other places. Because I think if we don't do that, if we don't look widely, we're in danger we would be in danger of reproducing a fixed or a static hierarchy, and that would be a false one, and that's not what is, is happening. So far from being a normative status-based system of spiritual hierarchy is not personal. It is simply the outcome of the fruits of practice, and seeing fit people further on the path than us, whoever they are, can increase our faith help to deepen our going for refuge to the three jewels. Provide evidence, in a sense, or reassurance that we are on the right path, that awakening is possible for all of us. So when we see an image of the Buddha, or evoke him in our imagination, gaze upon this wonderful rupa of the Buddha that we have before us, we are simply trying to open to what it evokes in us. Reverence, awe, devotion, inspiration, faith. And we can allow ourselves to be open to that without feeling that in some ways we are diminished by those feelings. In contrast, we grow and become something bigger, something better, something much more magnificent than we currently are. Likewise, to open ourselves fully to the wisdom and compassion of our friends is not to lose ourselves, but again to open up to something that is bigger and beyond ourselves, something that cannot be explained by recourse to the rational. It's to truly open ourselves up to the transcendental. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.